All right, uh, turn with me, if you will, in, in your Bibles back to First John chapter 5. Thanks, Greg, for leading us this morning and for reading the passage earlier. Uh, before we start, I'd just like to, um, to have a little prayer. Um, uh, many of you know Rosemary Redshaw, and I think she's going in to have her operation tomorrow uh, for cancer, so I'd like to remember her. Um, this morning, uh, and uh, and also the Salisbury's as well. Uh, is there anything else we need to pray for as a church family? All right, let's pray for those things, and then we'll, we'll look at the, the Word together. Dear Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would uh, watch over us this morning. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that we can open it together. We do remember, Lord, and think of Rosemary as she has her operation tomorrow. We pray for uh, skill for the surgeons. And Lord, we just ask that you would uh, watch over her, help her to recover quickly. Pray that uh, the operation may be successful. Pray for John as well, Lord, as he uh, stays by her side. And it sounds like it will be quite a long procedure. So we just pray for your hand upon him and, uh, and Rosemary as well. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, Lord for the Silsbys as well, Lord, as they are away. Um, and pray that you may continue to, to watch over them on their travels. And uh, Lord, pray that you'd be with us this morning as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so First John chapter 5, you may um, remember, or you may not, that uh, when I've had occasion to be in the pulpit, we've been working through the little epistle of First John, and we've come to the last chapter, and this is not high enough. How's that? Is that any better? I'll try and speak up. No, is it on? Okay, all right. Okay, is that any better? I'll try and speak up this morning. Um, okay, so yeah, we've been looking through the, the book of First John. We've come to the last chapter. If you're like me, you like expositional preaching. That's line by line, verse by verse, going through uh, books. Uh, one of the difficulties with it, that sort of preaching is sometimes you hit a chapter which is quite difficult. Uh, and First John 5 is one of those chapters that there's been some debate over the years, good, healthy uh, debate about what exactly John is saying. Uh, and if, when Greg was reading it, your ears pricked up a few times and said, and you thought to yourself, well, that sounds interesting. I wonder what John's saying in that. Uh, hopefully, we will, uh, we will deal with that uh, today and in the next um, time I'm up, up here as well. So we're going to break the, the chapter, chapter number 5, into two sessions. Uh, and normally the way that we would do that is we'd sort of break it in half and look at one half and then and then the next. Uh, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to look at verses 6 to 12 today, and then we're going to look at the rest of the chapter next time um, I'm up here. And, and the reason for that is that these verses 6 to 12 uh, are kind of like a little island in the middle of this chapter, and they're really talking about the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want to do that today, and then the rest of the chapter is concerning what the believer knows. Um, it's really John's heart is to communicate and for us to be uh, assured of our salvation, assured of our faith, and encouraged uh, by this little epistle. So we'll look at that next time. So today these little uh, verses, we'll, we'll read them together again, just verses 6 to 12. Um, they're really about... Um, about Jesus, and the, the title of the of this passage in, in my Bible, anyway, says the testimony concerning the Son of God. Maybe your Bible says something similar, and uh, that's certainly going to be our our sermon title this morning: the testimony concerning the Son of God. 
Let's read it together. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So the word testimony there is repeated eight times in these six verses. Um, it's the Greek term martyria, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but it means simply to give evidence, to give testimony, uh, to back up what is being said, an event or something which, which backs up what has been said previously. And John's almost presenting this a little bit like a legal case. He wants to present some evidence to who Jesus is and who he claims to be. And so, you know, if, if we had, uh, if we all came out of church after the service and, and a car came down the road and smashed into a tree outside, uh, um, outside the, the building this morning, the police would undoubtedly come and they'd ask us questions. They'd say, well, what, what happened? How fast was he going? Was he under the influence of something? And through our eyewitness accounts, they could build up what happened. And so I want to take a similar approach this morning to the three elements that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at some eyewitnesses to each of these accounts and to uh, build up a, a testimony from that point. Now we have to remember this morning that John was an old man. Uh, he was possibly 90 years old. This is probably 60 odd years since Christ was crucified on the cross. And so he was one of the last people who could say that he was an eyewitness to Jesus and what had happened. He says in the beginning of John, First uh, John 1, 1, he says, That which was from the beginning we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. He was one of the last people probably alive who could say, well, we, I physically touched Jesus. I was there with him and I saw these things with my own eyes. And because of there was this gap of time, a few false doctrines had started to arise and were becoming a real problem. People were sliding away from what the apostles had said and, were, um, and what they had preached about Jesus and were starting to mix truth with error. And so as we, um, as we look at this this morning, let's, um, we'll do it in the context of a, of a courtroom scene. You and I can play the, the part of the jury. We must decide uh, on, based on the evidence who Jesus was. Was he really who he claimed to be? The defendant this morning will be Christ himself the king of the Jews, the one who claimed to be the son of God. The prosecution this morning will be the false teachers and non-believers who had rejected Christ as king. And uh, they had already mounted their attack, obviously. So the do false doctrines were everywhere around the church. And, um, and it, it says back in chapter number 2 and verse 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
for if they had been of us, they would not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. They were, they had some truth, they'd mixed it with error, and they'd gone out from the faith. And it's the same today, isn't it? With so many false religions around, so many that take a little bit of truth from the Bible and then mix it in with what they what they think and their error, their traditions, that sort of thing, to uh, to misrepresent what the Bible actually says. In those days, there's two main ways, and, and today as well, there's two main ways that you can attack Jesus. You can attack his humanity, or you can attack his deity. Um, back in these early days of the of the church, there was this uh, growing belief called Gnosticism, and that was one of the main things that John was combating with his little epistle. And they didn't really have a problem with Jesus being God or that he existed at all, but the problem they had was they believed that flesh had no goodness. So you, you, if, you have, if you're a man, you couldn't do anything good. You couldn't do anything right. Um, therefore, Jesus had to be some kind of spirit. If he was a God, then he couldn't have been flesh. He couldn't have had a fleshly body as well at the same time. Um, that belief is obviously not around anymore in that sort of form. Um, but today, people deny Jesus' humanity by simply believing that he didn't exist at all. Uh, they say things like, oh, that's myths and fairy tales. That's just made up. It's 2,000 years ago. Surely it's, you know, surely you've got over it by now. It's just, it's just not true. Um, and, you know, if you uh, study history, you know that the Bible is uh, so well documented. Um, this is a great little book. If you ever want to read a little bit more, more than a carpenter, there's, these are in the church library and there's some really great things in there. But one of the things that they say in there um, is over 20,000 manuscripts in, written about the Bible, or fragments of the Bible that they can use, that they can call on to put the Bible together. Uh, 6,000 manuscripts in the, of the New Testament alone. By far and away the greatest um, collection of ancient writings um, of anything. The, the next highest is... Um, is Homer's Iliad, which only has 600 manuscripts. So if you kind of think, if people believe in Homer, and then if you look at Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and all those sorts of things, people don't have any issue believing them, um, but all their stuff, there's probably 10, 20, 30, something like that, manuscripts for each of their writings. So um, when you look, compare that to the Bible, if you believe in one, you have to believe in the authority of the Bible and how many manuscripts, more manuscripts there are of the Bible. So, and of course, back in those days, that couldn't have been a, an argument. Everybody knew that Jesus had existed. They could talk to people who'd seen him. People like John could say, of course, he was a man. He was doing what he, you know, we can attest to what he did. And so, John mounts a threefold attack. He looks, wants to look at three testimonies to who Jesus was. And those are outlined there in verse number seven. It says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. This is one of those verses that I said before was uh, then to see some, a little bit of debate about what exactly John is saying here. Uh, there are, and really it's around the word water. What does it, what does it mean when, when John's referring to the water there? Some would say that uh, the water means that Jesus was physically born. Um, that's referring to his birth, uh, and that would, of course, combat the Gnostics who said that he wasn't a real man or anything, you know, but the, the water was about the fact that he was born. 
Um, so that makes some sense. Uh, others would say that uh, that the water and the blood go together. Uh, and you remember that when Christ was on the cross, the soldier uh, put the, the spear through his side and out came water and blood. And so some say that that is referring to that event there. Uh, I think it's a little bit uh, more than that. It seems to say there in, in um, verse number 6 uh, that Jesus came not by water only, but by water and blood. So it certainly seems to me anyway that there's two events that it's talking about. So the majority of commentators, and this is my own view as well, believe that the water there is really talking um, about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So if we have the water, <coughs> we mean the the water is referring to his baptism. That was the beginning of his earthly ministry. Uh, and then it goes through to the blood being Christ's death on the cross. And then the Spirit, of course, uh, Jesus himself uh, sent the Spirit, as we read, to uh, two believers after his death. So it kind of works chronologically if we look at it that way. Uh, the water at the beginning, the blood, and then the Spirit. And so we're going to look at those three testimonies this morning, um, and John is going to help us with that, and we're going to call a few eyewitnesses to the uh, to the table as well to make tes- to, to give testimony of, of these things. So we'll start with the testimony of the water. And if we, uh, before we look at that, we need to sort of go back another 700 years. And this might be hard to do in a court of law, but if we could go back 700 years and grab a man called Isaiah and bring him to the stand, he would tell us two things. Uh, and these are in Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah 42. Uh, and it says, in Isaiah 40 verse 3, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then he says in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So 700 years before Jesus came, uh, Isaiah prophesied these things. And the first prophecy there was about John the Baptist. And so turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We'll have a look at this testimony of the water. Matthew chapter 3. Now John the Baptist, we know, he lived a a pretty rough life. He was a very powerful preacher. He lived out in the the desert regions, in the wilderness, as prophesied by, um, by Isaiah. And people flocked out to see him, to hear him preach, to confess their sins, and to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. All of his, the focus of his sermons was that the king of the Jews was coming. The Messiah, the one they had been waiting for, was coming. And so Matthew 3 verse 4, we see, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were ba- being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist sounds a bit like Jesus here, doesn't he? He really goes after the religious leaders. There's nothing that, that God himself hates more than people who pervert the, the, uh, the, the truth. And the religious leaders of the day, as we know, uh, both John and Jesus uh, went after them and told them what they were doing wrong. Is that better? Um, and so, that is louder. Um, and so John is saying here, uh, that these guys weren't doing what was right, weren't preaching what was right. So we see there in 13 to 17, we see the event that we want to look at this morning of the testimony of the water, uh, and it's about Jesus. And it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so for now, for these for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is a fulfillment of the second prophecy that Isaiah said. Uh, and that, that passage about Jesus Christ, saying that the Spirit of God would descend on him. And this is uh, probably one of the clearest shows or displays of the, the Trinity of God. We have here the, the Spirit in the form of a dove coming down. We have Jesus going into the water and being baptized by John. And then we have God himself saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so John himself could give testimony to these events, couldn't he? And all the people who saw it could say, this is not a normal baptism. Lots of other people were about going into the Jordan River and being baptized, but none others had this testimony from God himself and from the Spirit of God. You know, it's uh, hard to understand the Trinity sometimes. Um, and uh, And... And this is a good example, though, of how the Trinity works. There's one God, but three distinct persons. You know, some people say nowadays that um, the Spirit is not an actual person, that it's just a force or something like that, but it is a, the third person of the Trinity, and we can see him displayed there. So the testimony of the water shows that Jesus was so much more than just a man. What other baptism could ever be said? Uh, that God's voice came out from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. So we see that it's pretty convincing arguments. We've got the eyewitnesses who are there, John who is there, and then of course all that is blown away by God himself testifying to who Jesus was. And so if we were to call John the Baptist to the stand, hear his testimony from John 1.32. John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we see John was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and Jesus fulfilled prophecy for both Isaiah and for John. Uh, overshadowing that, of course, is the, uh, the testimony of God himself. That's pretty powerful stuff. But let's move on to the second thing that we want to look at from our text, the testimony of the blood. And while some debate over the water, and what the water means, uh, what event it's talking about there, there isn't any debate about the blood. This undoubtedly refers to Jesus' death on the cross. Christ sacrificed to pay the penalty for sin. And which, event, which eyewitnesses to the event could we call? Well, we could call Jesus' disciples, perhaps, or Jesus' mother, those that were there at the time. Uh, but often if you have your friends and, and relatives and uh, those people that are kind to you testify for, for you, it doesn't have much uh, credibility. What if we could get some enemies to testify for Christ? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at two men, uh, two non-believers, who didn't have anything to gain by testifying uh, the way that they did. Uh, so we're going to look first of all at the, the thief on the cross, uh, Luke chapter 23. Turn with me there if you will. Luke 23, verse number 39. We see a man in the same position as Christ hanging on a cross, Jesus in the middle, and two, uh, two criminals either side of him. And in verse 39 it says, One of the criminals who hang on the cross railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man had made some pretty decision, bad decisions in the course of his life. He had, uh, whatever he had done, whether he was a thief or a murderer or both, he'd got himself into a position where he, the Romans, gave him the lowest form of death. There was nothing more severe than death on a cross. And so he had earned that death, and he was hanging on the cross next to Christ. And the other thief or uh, criminal um, rebuked Christ and said, Save us. You know, if you're supposed to be who you say you are, save us. And this man turned and as he did, uh, watched Christ hanging on the cross, uh, he had changed his mind about him. He was of the same thought at the beginning, and we can read that from the other passages in the Gospels. He railed on Jesus to begin with, but then as he observed Jesus, he changed his view. And although he was in the same state, he confessed that he was the Christ. You know, I love the conversion of the thief on the cross. He was dying. There was nothing he could do. He couldn't go out and do great works to earn his salvation. He couldn't go and do all the, the sacraments and things of the religious 
um, leaders. He couldn't become a, a Jew or do anything other than just believe. That's all he had, all he had to do. He couldn't go on any mission or do anything like that. He just all he had to do was believe, and that's all he could do. He was hanging on a cross. He was dying. He'd had a life full of sin, and it had ended up him up in that position. And he testifies five things. Um, he testifies first of all that he respects God, and we see that because he says to the other criminal, "Don't you fear God?" Which, by inference, means he did fear and respect God. Secondly, he acknowledges his own sin, he says, uh, we're under the same condemnation, you know, this man Jesus is dying, uh, we are too, and we indeed justly, you know, we're getting what we deserve, we've been miserable, we've done sinful things, we're getting the reward for our deeds, but this man is not. And so thirdly, he recognized that Jesus was sinless, that this man had done nothing wrong. Fourthly, he called out to Jesus, uh, and acknowledged him as Lord and, and King. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And lastly, he, he believed the promise of everlasting life for Jesus. As Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so we look at the thief on the cross and we see he did nothing but believe in Christ. He changed his view from the time he had uh, from the beginning of being hung on the cross to the end, and the result was eternal life because of his faith and nothing else, nothing he could have done. Secondly, let's look at another non-believer. Uh, in fact, this man was not a Jew. He was the, the enemy uh, of the Jewish people. He was a Roman centurion. Matthew 27, verse 45. Matthew 27. Again, this is Jesus on the cross. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out loud with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. He was a soldier. He was an unbeliever. He was placed in charge of the crucifixion of these three men and he'd probably done many other crucifixions before and yet Jesus' crucifixion was entirely different to all the other ones that he had done. When now other people had died on the cross, nothing really changed, did it? You know, life continued. They died, that was it. You know, The centurions were, and the soldiers would have gone about the business of cleaning up. 
But when Jesus was about to die, the whole sky turned black. When he did die, he, the, he cried out and the whole earth shook with a great earthquake. On top of that, we hear that the curtain in the temple was ripped, not by human hands from the bottom upwards, but from the top to the bottom. Dead believers, dead Jews, came out of their tombs and walked into the city. This was by no means a normal death. And as the centurion and those who were with him saw this, they could only confess, truly, this was the Son of God. They may not have been believers, but they were in no doubt that Jesus was the Son of God. And so we have two men who have nothing to gain by testifying that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And yet both of them did proclaim that absolute truth. And we, we could look at many other things around Jesus' death, of course, that uh, add weight to this case. But I just wanted to share those two men with you this morning. Thirdly and finally, we want to look at the testimony of the Spirit. So we've had the water and we've had the blood, and then we see here John talks about the testimony of the Spirit. And as John the Baptist prophesied in Mark 1.8, he said, I have baptized you with water, but he, meaning the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself uh, says in, God, in, in John's Gospel, John 14, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promised that after his death and resurrection, he would send the Holy Spirit to dwell with believers. Before that time, the Holy Spirit had an influence, but had not dwelt personally inside believers and not taken up residency, if you like, inside the life of the believer. And so that is what the Holy Spirit's promise is. It says there in verse 16 that he promises to be with us forever. And the purpose uh, initially for the Holy Spirit was so that the truth about Christ might be spread. And uh, in Acts 1.8 we see, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see at Pentecost this begins to happen. The word is spread forth and um, believers receive the Holy Spirit and start to do wondrous miracles, to preach in languages that they never learned, and to share the truth about who Jesus was and to establish all that Jesus had promised. And the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives as he is in the lives of believers today. And so if we were to call someone who could testify to the stand, we would look for probably Peter. Here is the man who denied Christ three times in one night. He was afraid even of a young girl knowing that he was with Jesus. And yet, once filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes forth with great boldness and teaches and uh, preaches about Jesus all over Jerusalem and Judea and also out to the other ends of the world with other believers too. So this is how the Spirit came to dwell with believers. After the events of Pentecost and those apostles going out, uh, we see that, that amazing time when the Holy Spirit was given and was visible. And for, for now, believers are given the Spirit at the point of salvation. 
the Spirit moves in at that time. And we can see that from Second Corinthians 1 where it says, And it is God who has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so upon salvation, God gives his seal upon us, just like the kings of old used to put their wax seal on their property or their communications. God places that seal on us, and the seal is the Holy Spirit. And then just, back, just as, as you would back then, it was a defiant act to, uh, to take away the seal of a king. Uh, so it is, we, we read in John, that no one can, can clutch us out of God's hand. That his seal upon us is forever. And the Holy Spirit, of course, does much more. Uh, he is our um, comforter, helper, advocate, advisor. All of these things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives to spur us on to holiness and to be like Christ. And so, what exactly is the testimony of the Spirit that John is talking about here? Well, when we have the indwelling Spirit of God, we will believe in Christ till our death. It gives us assurance of who Christ was. The Holy Spirit works within us to know the truth and to never give it up. No matter what comes or our way or what people say to us, the Holy Spirit confirms this truth within us of who Jesus is. And as we slowly conform to the image of Christ, we bear witness that this is not man's work or it's not our own will or abilities. It's solely the work of God in our hearts. So the testimony of the Spirit in the heart of the believer is really almost all the evidence we need. Uh, and as we look, we'll look next time at 1 John 5, there's many, many things that we know over and over and over, and the Holy Spirit confirms these to be true in our lives. You know, we get head knowledge from the Bible and heart knowledge from the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 of our passage says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The Holy Spirit living within the heart of the believer is the testimony of who Christ is. But there's also a flip side to that in verse number 11. Uh, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is his testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. There's only two sides to the story. We believe God and accept Jesus for who he is, or we reject him and call God a liar. In Acts we read that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are reminded again of the thief on the cross, how all he did was believe in Jesus and he was saved. There is only one way to heaven. Only one way to forgiveness and to a right relationship with God. And there is only one way to eternal life. And verse 12 is one of those special verses uh, that I have underlined in my Bible, and I hope you do too. It says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty simple. We can replace the words the Son with Jesus. Whoever has Jesus has life. Whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. Even a child can understand that concept. We need Jesus to be forgiven of our sin. And life there is not just physical life. It's not your best life now. It's not all the things that you want in this world. It's eternal life. 
is living with Christ forever. As the thief on the cross looked to Christ for to be saved, and, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he has that reward forever, as do when we when we accept Christ as Saviour. And it says there in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And we'll look at that verse a little bit later uh, in the next time. But we know that we have eternal life. And so I want to ask this morning, do you know that you have the Son? Do you believe the testimonies mentioned here, the water and the blood and the Spirit? Can you testify that Jesus is your Saviour? And do you have life, eternal life through him? So these three uh, agree that testify the water, the spirit, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you, Lord, that we can uh, know that we can have eternal life, Lord that we can look back at history and we can look back through the word of God and see the truth of Christ and who he was, that he was the Son of God, that he was God himself, that he is who he claimed to be, and that only through his name may we be saved. And Lord, I pray this morning that you may help us to share the truth with others. I pray that people may come to know you as Savior, Lord. And Lord, when you look at, when you're on the other side, it seems so obvious and so real. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who confirms these truths in our lives. And uh, Lord, who changes us from somebody like Peter who was fearful and afraid, uh, Lord, to somebody who can have boldness and can know without a shadow of a doubt who they are, why they're here, and where we're going. Lord, we thank you for the promise of eternal life through Christ. And uh, Lord, pray that you help us to use the few days that we have on this earth, Lord, for your honour and for your glory. We just pray that you'll uh, be with us this week. Help us, Lord, to serve you, Lord, and to put you first.